Good evening. Welcome to a new series. I'm really excited about this series. We've got our friends in Edmond and Livestream with us as well. Uh, I should remind you, I know almost everybody knows this, but just as a matter of form, if you will text questions to that number during class, we'll just try to answer as many questions as we can. It's always helpful to know what's on your mind, what's not clear, etc. But for the next uh, about seven sessions, we are going to be walking with Jesus. We are going to take a different approach, maybe to Jesus' teaching, and I'll tell you about that right after we open in prayer. It's just a novel approach to this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together. Thank you for a country in which we can gather to study your word, that we can be in community, and I pray that you would give us Stronger faith, as our knowledge grows, may our faith grow and may our faith express itself through love to a world that desperately needs it. We thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after our last uh, lesson, I thought, you know, I'd really like to get back to just talking about some of Jesus' basic teaching, but we're going to combine that with another interest, which is a little history, a little geography, a little archaeology. And so what I thought we would do is we are going to follow Jesus during the three, three and a half years of his ministry in chronological and geographical order. In other words, we won't go every, obviously in seven sessions, we can't go through every place, but we're gonna start and just as Jesus travels, we're gonna travel with him. And then every lesson we'll have one or two teachings that he did at that place. So my hope is to give you a sense of the chronological flow and, the, and really the geographical flow. You know, where did Jesus travel? You'll see him going to Jerusalem, back to Galilee, and just kind of see the flow of his ministry. And then we'll just study something in each of those places so that we can hopefully increase our knowledge. And I hope this makes it come alive a little bit more. So let's start with a picture of, this is a map of Israel in Roman times. So you'll see the different regions, Samaria, you see Judea down in the south, the Decapolis, Perea, Galilee. We're gonna be in all these places because Jesus was in all of those regions. But those are the Roman divisions. And this was from about 37 BC. Think Herod the Great takes over as king of this area and extends past the time of Jesus. So this is kind of how the Romans organized this part of the world. It's a great way to look at it. Chronologically, let's talk about this for a minute. If you have questions, you can text them in, but I'm gonna give you the rough idea of when these things are happening. So Jesus comes of age and Luke tells us that when he's 30 years old, he began his public ministry. He began traveling, preaching, etc., And that's where we're gonna pick up with Jesus when he's 30 years old. And I'm gonna to suggest to you that that's about 26 or 27 AD. So about 26, 27 AD is where our story is going to begin as Jesus begins his public ministry. So what does he do first? It's not the very first thing that he does, but Jesus, one of the first things he does is he encounters John the Baptist and he is baptized. And that's where I'd like to start our story. He's done a couple of things before this and we can't cover everything, but he leaves Galilee and he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, it's a title. 
I don't mean he was the first Southern Baptist. I'm just saying he was John, the one who baptizes. Then Jesus came from Galilee, up in the north, to the Jordan, Jordan River, Jordan River Valley, to be baptized by John. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so for now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, effectively, and it's not an accident. But the two events we're going to talk about in this lesson, the first couple of major things Jesus does, are done with huge intentionality to tie together, his, to set the stage for his whole ministry. I'm going to suggest that it's hard to really, truly understand Jesus' ministry without understanding what we're going to talk about in this lesson. So the first thing he does, he goes to the Jordan River. So I thought I'd give you some pictures of our trips to Israel. These are pictures of, uh, for this is the Jordan River. Now today, Jordan River, a little bit different than it was in Jesus' time, mainly because the uh, Israelis have dammed up the Jordan River because it is their main source of fresh water. If you look at the nation of Israel, they don't have a lot of fresh water. In fact, they lead the world in desalinization technology, meaning taking seawater, turning it into fresh water. They have the Sea of Galilee, and then out of it comes the Jordan River, and that's a fresh water source. So they basically dam it up, very wise use of the water, and use it to irrigate, and use it for a lot of things, all the way from the northern to the southern end of, of the Jordan River. So they control the flow. So sometimes today, the Jordan River is really small because they're not letting a lot of water through it. This is probably maybe a little smaller than it was in Jesus' time, but this is a great example of what the Jordan River looks like. Obviously, it's pretty lush around the Jordan River because although Israel's kind of a dry land, Obviously, in this river valley, you'll just see beautiful, lush uh, greenery all down the Jordan River. And it's to a place like this that John would have been baptizing. He's baptizing here because that's where there's water. There's just not that much water in the land. So John was usually baptizing somewhere around the Jordan River and its environs. And so that's where Jesus goes. So let me show you first kind of where this likely is. And again, this, you can't be entirely sure of this, but in my view, what Jesus does is he leaves this area up here in the, uh, near Galilee, and he is going to make his way pretty far south. And I think this area right there, if you can see where I've circled, across from Jericho, seems to me, based on John chapter 1, a very likely spot where John was baptizing. And so Jesus goes down the Jordan River Valley and he's gonna be baptized right uh, probably near Jericho. Uh, John says uh, that, uh, the Gospel of John says, John the Baptist was baptizing near Bethany across the Jordan. It's Bethany across the Jordan is probably in that location. And so he's probably gone here 
to be baptized. And I thought we'd stop for a second and just talk about why was Jesus baptized. I mean, if you think about it, John was baptizing for repentance. In other words, people repenting of their sins, which means literally changing their minds and turning around. They're being baptized as a sign that I have changed my mind and I'm going to stop going this direction, and I'm going to follow God. That's literally what repentance means, changing your mind, changing your life. So he's giving them a baptism of repentance for their sins, for their disobedience, their unfaithfulness to God. Well, if you stop and think about it, does Jesus sin? Does Jesus need to repent of sin? Well, no. In fact, he does not. And I think that's why John says to him, you want me to baptize you? You have no sins to repent. He said, I am a sinful man. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, no, this is the way we're going to do it. And I think there are two reasons that Jesus does this. And the first reason is obedience. If you think about Philippians chapter 2, we talked about this through the Easter weekend, is that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to take on human form, obedient even to the point of death on a cross. His obedience involved doing all the things that he should do, both as an example and, I'll show you in a minute, as a kind of a forecast of what his ministry was going to be about. I think it was simple. Obedience is one of the two reasons. In fact, when people ask today, do I need to be baptized? Well, our church and our understanding and my understanding of the Scriptures is that you are not saved by being baptized. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So if that's true, why then would you and I be baptized? Well, people will answer a couple different ways, but I'd like to suggest for the same reason that Jesus was baptized. If you think about Jesus' last commission to his disciples all the way at Matthew chapter 28, I mean the very end, he's raised from the dead, he gives his disciples some instructions and he says, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nation, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if for no other reason, and you may have other theological persuasions here, but I would argue that we are baptized at least as a matter of obedience to Christ. Do we have to be baptized or we're not saved? That's not my understanding of the Scripture. That's not our church's view of what baptism is for. But if Jesus was obedient enough to be baptized when he certainly did not need to, then I think we are baptized at least as a matter of obedience. So I think that's one of the reasons. The second reason, though, has to do with something that happened, uh, according to traditional dating, 1,400 years before Jesus' ministry, and that is the exodus of the Jews. I'll give you the short version of that story because I don't assume that everybody knows the story of the Exodus. It's a powerful story. It is the formative event for the Jewish people. It's where the Jewish people really came into being a nation, a chosen people of God. The Exodus was the formative event in Jewish history. So about 1400 BC, this is in the book of Exodus, needless to say, in uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. God sent Moses as a deliverer 
just as he had promised to take them out. So after some interactions and, and some events between Moses and Pharaoh, ultimately Pharaoh said, after Egypt really has been economically devastated by God's judgment on Egypt, but the people leave. And so they leave Egypt, and I'll show you a map in a little bit, but for now I just want to tell you the basic outlines of the story. They leave Egypt following this deliverer that God has sent, and he leads them into the desert. He leads them through the Red Sea. Remember the sea parting? And uh, they go through on dry ground, and Pharaoh's army is destroyed by the waters of the Red Sea. So they go through the Red Sea. Moses parts the Red Sea. They go into the desert. By the way, desert and wilderness are interchangeable terms in your Bibles and because they're not for us. Desert, sand. Wilderness, Colorado. Okay, that's how we think of it. But that word that's translated wilderness is also desert. And I'll show you exactly what it looks like in a minute. But basically, they go wander in the desert, not wandering because they're lost, but they're basically moving through the desert because God is doing something with these people. And so 40 years later, they come to the promised land. They come to the land of Israel. And so they camp right across from Jericho. And you may remember this, Jordan River's at flood stage. And so the Jordan River stops. They walk across Jericho, huge uh, fortress. I mean, literally a fortress. You know, go around it seven times. Remember the story of Joshua and the trumpets? And basically they conquer Jericho and they go into this promised land. So the story of the Exodus is essentially, this is a historical event for the Jewish people, is slavery, being led out of slavery through a desert experience into freedom, into the promised land of freedom. That's called the Exodus motif or the Exodus story. So whether you've read it or not, now you've seen the bare bones of that story. And by the way, you are going to see that little storyline in all kinds of books and movies. It is such a powerful story from the past that you'll see it in secular movies. You'll see it over and over again. Slavery, deliverer, desert experience, freedom. That's the Exodus story. I think the second reason that Jesus did this is, let me show you a verse. This is an interesting little verse. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing in the New Testament, and he's talking about the Exodus. He's, he's talking about the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and as they went through the Red Sea, he says this, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers, meaning the Israelites coming out of Egypt, were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. That's true. God parted the Red Sea. They walked through they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What's he saying? He said, there's actually a baptism happening there. They literally passed through the water on their way to freedom. And so these people took another direction. In other words, they were slaves, now they're headed toward freedom, and baptism was the first thing they did. What's the first thing Jesus does? He's baptized. And so you start to see little connection here with the Exodus story. So hold that thought because it's going to get stronger and stronger. Question? Yes, I have several. How many days would it have taken for Jesus to travel from Galilee to the Jericho area? From Galilee to Jericho, he probably took the number one bus and then he transferred to, I'm just kidding you. Uh, you could walk about 
20 miles a day, and you'll see a lot of things that are set about that far apart because it was a day's journey. And so if you'll look at your map and you just look at the legend, you'll get a feel for how long. Now the terrain matters, and you'll notice that they rarely just go up and down the mountains. That's why in that map, and I'll go back just to show you here for a second, you notice how there, the Jordan River has a, this is a big rift valley. I mean, it comes down, Dead Sea, lowest place on earth, right? It comes down in this big rift valley, but it's really easy to travel because it's kind of flat. Mountains on both sides, not easy to travel. And so there are reasons that they traveled certain routes. So I'd have to calculate exactly how many days it would take. It just looks like from the legend on the map that you probably have about a three-day journey, maybe. We'll look into that and see exactly. But depending on how, you know, how big a hurry you were in and how many miles a day you'd walk. But they typically could walk about 20 miles a day. Was it at that time, and is it now typical for Jews to be baptized, or was this a new idea that came with John the Baptist? That's a great question. Is, was baptism a new idea? It was, in a sense, but not in form. Let me tell you what I mean. For the Jews, they would do purification, ritual purification. And so they had these little, uh, basically, hot tubs. Don't tell anybody I called it a hot tub. But in Hebrew, it's called a mikveh, M-I-K-V-E-H, M-I-K-V-E-H. And so you would walk down into the water, and it typically had flowing water, water coming in, water going out. And it was a, you weren't there to, you know, scrub off, you didn't wash your hair, you know, rinse, repeat, kind of thing. You walked into the water, and then you walked out, and you were ritually clean. In other words, it was this outward symbol of Lord cleanse me before the Lord. And so before you went into the temple, before you did all kinds of things, you needed to go into a mikvah. There were also other times in the law of Moses when you needed to do it, but leave that aside for a minute. So for example, when you get into near the area of Jerusalem, near the temple mount, you'll see archeological finds. I'll try to bring a picture of a mikvah next week. That's a really good question. You'll find all kinds of these little ritual baths called mikvah. And so you will see them in a lot of places. You see tons of them at Qumran, by the way, which is very interesting because those people were more interested in ritual cleanliness than anybody you've ever seen. But so they were familiar with the idea of going down into the water to become ritually clean before God as a symbol. But John the Baptist was putting people into the water, not in the mikvahs, in any kind of water, and he was doing it for a different reason. He wasn't saying, do this, and now, according to the law of Moses, you're ritually clean. He said, this water is a symbol of repentance, of changing your mind. So the idea of being immersed in water as a significant thing was not new, but the idea of baptism, as we know baptism, uh, particularly as it later becomes a symbol of the death and the resurrection of Christ, that part was new. Good question. When did Jesus know that he was God, and why did he wait till he was 30 to start his ministry? When did Jesus know that he was God, and why did he wait until he was 30 to start his ministry? When did Jesus know he was God is a very hotly debated topic amongst different theological persuasions. I mean, and I don't know that anybody actually knows the answer to that. Um, 
I would argue that from the time that Jesus has consciousness, you know, I mean, in other words, adulthood in some sense, he understands that he is called, he is special. But certainly, leaving that aside, and the answer to that is no one can really answer it. I wouldn't read a lot of theology into it, though. I think it's really stretching to say, well, he didn't know until his baptism. And that's when he actually became God. He was a man before. That's a heresy known as Gnosticism. Like, well, he wasn't God until he was baptized. That's not really a very biblical view, but the Bible doesn't tell us, okay, was it 13 or was it when he was in ninth grade, when he was 15 that he found out? I mean, the Bible doesn't deign to give us that precise information. 30 years old was traditionally for the Jews the time when you were taken seriously. You were basically thought at that point to be a man, fully a man in Jewish society. Now, when you were about 13-ish or so, you became a son of the commandments and able to tell right from wrong. You were expected to obey the law. But it really wasn't until you were about 30 years old, particularly if you were a teacher or a rabbi, that you would be taken seriously as someone who uh, could really fully engage in the adult world particularly for a rabbi, and Jesus came as a teacher. So that was a very traditional age to do that. Could Jesus have done it at 28 or 27? Well, sure. No particular reason he couldn't accept that. It was more culturally acceptable. Uh, was the dove that descended on Jesus during the baptism uh, an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or did he already have the Holy Spirit with him? Good question. Was the dove uh, the Holy Spirit or did he already have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Okay, first, I wanna make two observations. It said the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And I know the dove has become the symbol, by the way, of the Holy Spirit. I have no problem with that at all. But the Holy Spirit descended upon him and the best way they could describe it was like a dove. So you actually see, and the second observation is, you see all three of the Trinity together. God the Father speaking, God the Son listening, and God the Holy Spirit involved in this communing between them. So is Jesus in communion with the Father before this? Seems extremely likely. Is Jesus in communion with the Holy Spirit before this? There's no reason to think not. This event seems to be more for everybody else as a kind of a confirming sign that here is God and the Spirit descending upon him. Who is this Jesus? So you get this early idea that this is indeed the Son of God. So I think that's more a sign than it is a symbol that, okay, now Jesus has the Holy Spirit. He's in communion. He was just a regular guy till he was 30. I think that's very unlikely. So, But the Scripture doesn't speak specifically to that. Uh, in current times, is the Jordan River heavily guarded since it's a freshwater source and a border? Yeah, good question. Is, uh, is it heavily guarded? Well, let me go back. This, we're getting off into politics, but I'm going to show you this map, but it's really interesting. Okay, so this is the Golan Heights up here. That used to be Syria. Can you guys see that okay? The red, is that a thick enough line? Okay, that's kind of the Golan Heights and it used to be Syria. You'll notice it's right on the Sea of Galilee. There was a plan on Syria's part. I mean, obviously, they've been enemies of Israel, want to destroy 
Israel. I mean, that's just, that's not politics, that's just historical fact. And one of the real issues, there were two real issues with Syria holding the Golan Heights. Number one, they are high, and I'll show you pictures of it when we get to Galilee, is you can literally, you have a huge military advantage. Syrian snipers would, would just get on the Golan Heights and shoot at the Israeli settlers. The second thing is, your fresh water source is shared with Syria. Syria had a plan to dry up the water source, and they thought, fine, we can't kill the Jews, we'll kill them of thirst. So one of the reasons, one of the reasons, that after the 67 war, which is when Israel took the Golan Heights, this area, that they did not give it back. And the reason, couple reasons, one is they secured the Sea of Galilee as a secure water source. And secondly, military advantage from the Golan Heights. So that's just kind of an interesting answer to, your, to a very good question. So they don't necessarily guard it so much. I mean, there are fences on both sides of the Jordan River, but they basically did need to secure the, uh, the water source, and that was important to them. Okay? So what do the Israelites do? Let's just go back and forth between Jesus. Jesus is going to leave the Jordan River where he's baptized, and the Israelites have come through the Red Sea. 1,400 years separate these two events, but you're going to see unbelievable parallels. When the Israelites came through the Red Sea, where did they go next? They went into the desert, the Sinai Peninsula, and they were there for 40 years. And then they went into the Promised Land. So the next thing the Israelites do is they go into the wilderness, desert, of the Sinai Peninsula, and they're there for 40 years. What's the next thing Jesus does? Let's just keep going with our text. Then, after he was baptized, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Israelites are in the desert for 40 years. Moses, here's another thing for you Bible scholars, Moses went up to Mount Sinai while they were in the desert, and God gave him the Ten Commandments. You guys remember that, Charlton Heston? And so he gave him the Ten Commandments. How long was Moses on the top of the mountain? Forty days and forty nights. I want to show you this because there's very intentional parallelism between the Exodus event and the ministry of Jesus. So he is also led into the desert, or wilderness is sometimes translated. So the tempter came to him. I'll read this whole thing, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the desert itself, but just for completeness sake. So the tempter came to him, the tempter being the devil, and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written in the scriptures, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Satan thinks, you quote scripture? I'll quote scripture. He says, because the Psalms say, God will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. In other words, are you really the son of God? Scripture says, you could throw yourself off here and your angels will catch you. Jesus quotes scripture back. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor and riches. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. 
Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So Jesus has fasted for 40 days, 40 nights. And at the end of this time, I mean, Satan's no dummy. Like, don't go the first day because he's not that hungry, you know? So at the end of this time, he comes and he goes, you're vulnerable now. You're tired, you're hungry, etc." And he tempts him. So I want to camp out on this story a little bit, and I want to draw some more parallels. But first, I want to tell you what the desert looks like. So let me give you some pictures here. This event is happening kind of close to the Dead Sea. Uh, I'll show you on a map here in just a little bit. But this is right by the Dead Sea. This is actually one of the Qumran caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Dead Sea Scrolls were found not that far from where all these events are happening. And I just wanted you to get a feel for what it looks like. You see a whole lot of crops there? Yeah, like two inches of rain a year, right? So what you do get though, is you can kind of see that little gully on the other side of it. And so what you have is when it does rain, because there's no vegetation, you get huge amounts of water moving really quickly. And over time, they cut these deep little canyons that are called wadis, a W-A-D-I. Let me show you one of the famous wadis. This is cut by rainwater in the desert. This is a wadi, and at the bottom of it, you'll see that there's still enough moisture in the ground at the very bottom to support some trees. And sometimes that would happen. This actually is during the rainy season, so those trees may not be there all year. But look how deeply that cut that. That's what the Judean desert wilderness looks like. It's not wooded. It's just very dry. Cut these wadis. The other thing you see in most of these wadis, somebody's going to ask me, where did Jesus stay for 40 days in the wilderness. Is there a Motel 6 chain there? No, there are caves there. And so this is in the side of that wadi. One of the other things the water does, because this rock there is pretty soft, relatively speaking, and so it basically makes a lot of caves in that area. And so it was very common in those days, like John the Baptist undoubtedly uh, slept in caves. Jesus undoubtedly, when he was in 40 years in this desert, is sleeping in little caves like that. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of a feel for it. So what does the desert look like? Jews have three words for desert. One is, I won't tell you the words, but I'll just tell you, one is really bad. Like nobody lives there. Nobody can live there. Nothing lives there except National Geographic cameramen doing specials. All right, nothing in that desert. Then the next level of desert is, you might live there, but you better know where the water is, and you have to be very careful so that at the end of the day, you have water for your animals. But people don't live there. Third one is called the Midbar. That's the best desert. And I'll show you what it looks like. That desert is a place where you can live, and by the way, people still live. I'll show you some pictures. This is one of our groups walking into the Midbar. We have stopped and we are walking into, this is what the desert looked like. This is where Jesus was, a place that looked like this. You say, well, I see a little green there. That's because it's February, it's the rainy season. It's completely parched by May. We've been there in May also. This picture just happens to come uh, from, a, from a little more verdant time. So this is luxuriously green. By the way, this is off the subject, but you're gonna find this interesting. Notice on this hill, you see these little lines? 
Is that, can you all see those? Okay, when you graze sheep on these hills, first of all, you look at it and you go, there's nothing to eat there, and yet they find stuff. They walk across those hills I mean, they don't just all of them get together, and they certainly don't follow each other because the guy last in line at the buffet got no food left, right? They scatter down that hill, and they move across it. And over time, the Bedouins have grazed their flocks there so much that they make these little paths across, and that's how the sheep eat. They'll each take a path, and they'll go across, and they'll just get what they can get. So it's just interesting in this picture, I just noticed you can really see those little paths for the sheep. But this is what the Judean wilderness looked like. Uh, here's another view of us walking back into the area there. This is where Jesus would have been. By the way, the other interesting thing, I know this is kind of trivial, but I just have to share with you my uh, big aha moment in the desert. And I know if you're thinking profound, get that out of your head. If you look at that ground, you realize there are two million little rocks everywhere. And it occurred to me, where would you lay down to sleep out there? I mean, that's what it looked like for the Israelites for those 40 years. That's what it looked like for Jesus out there. There is no smooth place to lay down and sleep out there. It's really roughing it, very dry, almost nothing out there. There are, however, Bedouins out there. In those days, nomads, and today this is a couple of Bedouin uh, kids who are out there with a flock and they're grazing their sheep in this area, and that's where they live. Here's a Bedouin girl with uh, her flock out there. And again, this is the good time of year. That's actually got a lot of greenery out there. This is where Jesus was. So I don't know what picture you have in your head when we say wilderness or desert, but that's the midbar. That is basically the wilderness area. It's not very hospitable extremely hot out there in the summer, and never any more luxurious than that. So this is the desert area where the Israelites wandered for 40 years and where Jesus himself was. One of the, uh, so let's go back to our text a little bit, because I want to just show you a little something on this text itself. Jesus answers three times, and I want to show you a really interesting connection here. He quotes three passages of Scripture. So the devil basically says to him, make these stones become bread, and he says, man does not live on bread alone. He says, well, here, I'll take you to the temple, throw yourself down, you won't get hurt. He said, do not put your Lord God to the test. And then he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth, and Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him and him only. Jesus quotes three verses, and they're all from the book of Deuteronomy. And this is so clever. I want you to see how brilliant Jesus is. He's having a little fun with the devil. I mean, listen to this. This is so cool. It isn't funny. So he quotes three passages. Two of them are from Deuteronomy 6, one's from Deuteronomy 8. I'm going to show you in just a minute. But let me tell you when the book of Deuteronomy happens. So I told you, this is near the end of the 40 days. Satan comes. He's really hungry. He's at his weakest point. I'm going to tempt you. The book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament is Moses speaking to the Israelites at the end of the 40 years in the desert. At the end of the 40 years, they're now about ready to go into the promised land. They've finished their 40-year desert experience, 
And the book of Deuteronomy is pretty much one big long speech. Not exactly, but pretty much. Moses reminding the people of what he had told them 40 years before. You got the Ten Commandments in there, and he's telling them. So these quotes come from Moses' speech. I mean, God telling Moses, say this to the people, at the end of the 40 years in the desert when they're about to go into the Promised Land. And here are the quotes where Jesus gets these from. The first is Deuteronomy 8. This is Moses saying, do you remember in the desert where you had nothing to eat? Did you see anything to eat in those pictures? There are no 7-Elevens out there. And so what are you going to eat? Literally, they thought, we're going to starve. God miraculously gave them manna. In other words, every morning they woke up, there was this substance on the ground that they collected and they baked, and it was bread, and they called it manna. And so for 40 years, every day, they would see this manna from God. It's the only way you could survive in that desert. So Jesus says this. This is what he's telling the Israelites. Moses is saying, God humbled you, causing you to be hungry, teaching you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so that's what Jesus quotes. And Satan goes, oh, clever quote. And Jesus goes, cleverer than you think. Because what Jesus is saying, what was happening then, is happening now. In other words, Jesus is kind of acting out this Exodus story. What's the Exodus story all about? Taking people who are slaves and setting them free. Jesus is telling Satan, if he's smart enough to figure it out, exactly what he's here to do. Second answer comes from Deuteronomy 6. Do not test the Lord your God. That's Jesus' answer. From Deuteronomy 6. Third one, Deuteronomy 6.13. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only. Jesus' answers come from the book of Deuteronomy. And they basically make Satan, this is a painting of Satan tempting Jesus. Jesus' answers not only just rebut him, you know, he, he quotes scripture and says, that's not right. And because the scripture says this, a great reason for us to memorize scripture. But on a subtle level, he says, if you were only smart enough to know I'm quoting from the end of the 40 years in the desert right before Moses led the people to freedom. And Jesus is saying, I came to lead all the slaves, everybody who's a slave to sin, I'm going to lead them to freedom. So it's very subtle, very powerful message that he's giving to him. So I want to show you the Exodus. I want to draw a couple of parallels here for a moment. This is a map of the time in 1400 BC. And so you get the Israelites leave here. They cross the Red Sea. They are baptized by going through the water. They go down to Mount Sinai, where Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights receiving God's law, the law of Moses. They then move through this wilderness area, and they are just hanging around right, this is Israel, Canaan was the ancient name for Israel, and they spend 40 years right there in that wilderness or desert, and it looks just like what I showed you. So they spend 40 years there. They're not lost. They know exactly where they are. They know that the promised land's right over there, but they're not ready to enter the promised land. You see that word that says tempt when Satan tempts Jesus? It also means test. God tested the people to see if their faith was ready to be delivered. And they were not. 
And it took 40 years and an entire generation for them to lose their mindset of slavery and trust God. 40 years of every day waking up wondering, will God provide our daily bread for us tomorrow? Because if not, we're going to die. They learned to rely on God. Do you remember Jesus in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. That is actually a prayer about help me trust you. Like the Israelites had to learn to trust God out in that desert. So they spend 40 years in that desert. Then they go all the way up here to the top of my map and they enter the promised land at Jericho. They go across the Jordan River and they go in at Jericho. We bring you to a map in uh, little, this is still the time of Moses. So basically they're going to come up here and this is where the Israelites under Joshua go in, right there. That location might look a little bit familiar to you because that's where Jesus was baptized. So let's go to a map of Jesus' time. You notice this is where Jesus was baptized, right across from, from Jericho. This is where the Israelites entered. Guess where Jesus goes next? He goes to be baptized in the Jordan, he goes into the desert, and then he's going to cross the Jordan River and go into the land and begin to preach. Repent, because the kingdom of God is here. He has just reenacted the Exodus story. And so they went through the water, they spent 40 years in the desert, they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land and freedom from slavery. Jesus goes through the water into the desert for 40 days to be tested, crosses the Jordan River and goes into the promised land to set everybody free. Does that make sense? You see Jesus playing that out. That's why, I'm going to suggest to you, that's why the Exodus happened, is so that you and I now say, I see exactly what Jesus was doing. People told that story for 1,400 years. In fact, that story's still being told. That Exodus story is in all kinds of movies. Everybody in the world understands that basic story. Everybody in the world can understand the ministry of Jesus because he played that out again. And so the ministry of Jesus is so intimately connected with the Exodus story and the Exodus motif, if you will. That's what Jesus is doing. His movements are very intentional. His geographic movements are intended to draw parallels with the Exodus so that in the geography of what he's doing, you see the theology of what he is doing. Just like Moses delivered people from literal slavery to literal freedom, Jesus is coming through the water into the desert to reach all of the people who have been captivated by sin and are under a death sentence and set us free because of what he will do later on the cross. So I wanted you to see this parallel, and I think it's really stark when you think about Jesus. The first couple of things he does are very intentional. In other words, Jesus isn't just stumbling around here. Jesus has a three-year mission, if you will, to accomplish. He knows when he gets here that he came to die because that's the only way for the captives to be set free. But he begins to telegraph what he's doing in his ministry. Nobody, I don't think anybody at the time understood what he was doing, 
But I think after the resurrection of Christ, you get all these aha moments like, oh my goodness, look what he just did. Now it all makes sense. And so as you read your New Testament, I'd like for you to, and particularly as you read the Gospels, think of it in this context. Jesus is here to set the captives free. And he's going to use a story that everybody already knew. And that's the story of the Exodus. So the connections between the baptism out of obedience, but also a connection to the Exodus story, the desert time, reflecting again on the 40 years in the desert, and now he's going to come into the people and begin to deliver them. He's going to preach, repent, because the kingdom of God is here. Kingdom of God is freedom. In the New Testament, it talks about this world. You have the kingdom of Satan. Satan is the ruler of this present world. That's what Jesus is going to say in his ministry. Satan is the ruler of this present world. That's why Satan can take him up there and say, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. Why? All these sinners, they're mine. I have a mortgage on their soul. I can give you this whole world. And so Jesus comes and says, I actually came with the kingdom of God, and that's where the free people live. And everybody, and watch as we go through the Gospels, wants to know, how can I get into the kingdom of God? How can I become a citizen of the kingdom of God? How can I live in God's world instead of this world? And Jesus, is, a lot of his teaching is answering that question. What is the kingdom of God, and how can you enter into the kingdom of God? We call that today, in just common language, salvation. How can I be saved? The way Jesus is going to frame it is a little less of how can I be saved, more as in how can I come live as a free person, free from sin, free from death in God's world. That's how Jesus sees salvation. I don't know if that's helpful to you or not, but I would suggest that's a good way for us to see salvation. Because if you aren't careful, salvation can become a transaction. Hey, I believed in Jesus. I was baptized in the water, I'm in. Jesus doesn't see it so much as a transaction. He sees it as a completely different way of living, living as a free person. Free from what? Free from guilt, free from sin, able to be compassionate to anyone because I have no reason not to be compassionate, able to forgive. You, can you believe what I was forgiven? Of course, I'll forgive you. All of Jesus' teaching is predicated on understanding, quote, salvation as not just an event that happens. It is indeed an event where you, are, you come to believe in Christ, you're translated from death to life. But it's way more than that. It's living the kingdom life, living as a member of God's family. I think it's really healthy for us to think of salvation in that way. Because salvation isn't something you possess as much as it is a way and a place that you live. That's why the church is so important. If salvation is a transaction, what do we need each other for? I mean, we just give each other the secret handshake, so we'll all know we're Christians, right? But what do we need each other for? Well, actually, if you think of it in a kingdom point of view, we're all brothers and sisters in one big family. We're all fellow citizens. All this language you're going to see all over your New Testament. We're all fellow citizens in God's kingdom, all about God's work in this world. 
to show the rest of the world what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. That's a great way to think about the Christian life because that's exactly how Jesus thought about the Christian life. So hopefully out of this, you see kind of Jesus is very intentional in where he's going, what he's doing, and what he's teaching. But if I could give you one takeaway, it would be this. Try to think with a kingdom mindset. Try to think that Jesus has come to set us free, but he's not done with this once he sets us free. Once we come into freedom, then we are going to go about his business in the world. Our salvation is a way of living as much as it is a transaction. Okay? All right. Next, what does Jesus do? Well, after you've been baptized, you've been in the wilderness, and you want to go talk to all the slaves, where do you go? You go to Jerusalem, where all the people are trying so hard to live up to the law of Moses. Next place he goes is Jerusalem, gets in a little trouble in Jerusalem, decides, maybe I'll go back to Galilee. Goes back to Galilee by going through Samaria. He breaks, in the next lesson, Jesus breaks every rule you could break in the ancient world, and he gets his own wanted poster. So that's what we'll talk about next time. Jerusalem and Samaria, and Jesus gets in trouble. Thanks, guys. <laughs>